Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features Jake Berry, until recently the chair of the Conservative Party. And oh boy, Jake does not hold back. This contains some phenomenal stories from very, very recent British history. This is incredible. Before we come on uh, to this marvellous interview, um, I can announce some future guests. So my next guest on the show on Monday the 5th of December is Rachel Reeves, uh, the current shadow chancellor. Uh, If the polls are correct, perhaps the next chancellor. And then it's the Christmas special on the 19th of December with live music from MP4. And I can reveal one of my guests, very excited, is Emily Thornbury. Emily is always brilliant when she's on the show one of the most fun people i've ever had on so that will have a real end of term feel and i will be able to reveal my second guest very very soon then the first show back in the new year is the 23rd of january and my guests are emily maitlis and john sopel together that will be exceptional a couple of guests in february that i can't announce yet but as soon as i can just follow me matt ford on twitter um on the 6th of March, my guest will be Eddie Azard, and I'm booking more guests for next year. They're all phenomenal. So uh, get tickets. I've put the link into the blurb, into the show notes. Um, so, yes, oh, my word, some very exciting shows ahead. But before all then, a very exciting show today with Jake Berry, who you may have seen him popping up a bit. I, I do ask him, by the way, about that clip where Rishi Sunak has just become prime minister and there's Matt Hancock and Jake Berry and a load of other MPs, but they're the main ones in shot. And it looks like... Rishi Sunak deliberately doesn't shake Matt Hancock's hand but goes straight to Jake Berry. So, anyway, I ask him about that. So, be prepared for Jake's take on what happened. But my word on things like Gavin Williamson, Suella Braverman, the leadership of Rishi Sunak, and just the inside story of Liz Truss's premiership and and what really happened. And also Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson's uh, still appeal amongst so many Conservative MPs and members and perhaps out there in the public. So uh, this is a unique voice in British politics. And I I mean, I don't. there's just so much in this and it's brilliant and it's straight from the heart. It's impassioned, it's thoughtful, it's funny and it's just so of its time. Um, It's just so vital in a way uh, to talk to a politician um, like Jake at a time like this because he's just very honest about how he feels... You can tell that he can see peril ahead for his own party and um, he's uh, tactful about it. But nevertheless, he is he's also very candid. So this is a, a just such a timely interview with someone who um, is growing in prominence, who's who's uh, certainly getting more and more of a profile now. And uh, and you can see why he's he's a very good communicator and he's a brilliant guest. Oh, and obviously, before we come on to Jake, it would have been remiss not to do uh, a bit of stand up about um the, the man who will do the show, I hope, at some point next year, but was meant to be the guest tonight, uh, was Matt Hancock. But as we know, he's in the jungle.
this guy stood to be Prime Minister three years ago. <laughs> You're watching me, a penis, a vagina and an anus. Like there's a sliding doors. Every time he puts one of those things in his mouth. I mean, equally it makes you think, you know, Tom Tugendhat must be petrified about what 2025 holds for him. <laughs> the first ever Tory leadership candidate to end up on naked attraction. <laughs> You've got to go where the voters are and it turns out they're all watching Channel 4 wanking late at night. So... Uh, what other option do we have? Part of the problem he's got as well is he's in the jungle with a load of other celebrities who all want their moment with him. They all want to have that thing. And you can't help, whatever you think of him, you can't help but feel sorry for him at some point. When everyone's having a go at him, there is a point where you go, you're going to have to stop asking him now. And there's a guy called um, Baba Tundi who's a comedian and he, he goes, oh, bruv, he goes, uh, you were grabbing the booty. And Hancock's there going, look, I fell in love. Uh, he goes, yeah, you were grabbing the booty, though. And he's like, well, look, I, I, I fell in love. He's like, yeah, but you were grabbing the booty. And he keeps... And then at one point, Hancock goes, look, you know, I messed up and I fessed up. And you're like, mate, that, making it rhyme actually makes it less sincere. <laughs> Don't have, like, a little polished little rhyme for it, mate. That makes it sound way less real. Look, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, we, we did it in the office. It was wrong. You know, I changed the tone when I got a boner. You know, what can I say? <laughs> Check your state for health or I was bonking her on the stealth. You know, it was out of order, you know. It's, uh, I can't accept it. And then he says, look, there's a really tender moment where, uh, maybe I'm just being sobbing, there's a tender moment where he's chatting to uh, a, a woman who's on Coronation Street, someone else, and he's going, actually, I'm, I am here for a bit of forgiveness. And, and they all hug him. And you think, okay, I get that on an emotional level. But no other politician who's had that relationship with the public. I mean, imagine Blair would have gone into the jungle after Iraq. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm here, frankly, it's just, you know, I want people to see me as I really am, but I also want, you know, a sense of, I think, closure, and that's why it's been great to talk about it with Dizzy Rascal and Deirdre Barlow, you know. <laughs> it's really helped me. Um, some of the best TV this week was Prime Minister's Question Time, where, where Keir Starmer uh, really attacked. Rishi Sunak, by the way, you know, you watch him do Prime Minister's Questions, he's got... He feels less like a Prime Minister more... You know when they let the Youth Parliament use... <laughs> oh, they're always really irritating people. I think our tuck shop should have wham bars and astro belts. And yes, a Cadbury's twirl as well. They just deliver everything like that. He's very sort of like route one political delivery. But Starmer really turned to shreds over Gavin Williamson. He had some amazing lines. He said, everyone in the country... Know someone like the member for South Staffordshire. A pathetic little bully who gets off and intimidating those below him. Well, when he, I thought it was a good line, but when he, when he first said it, you're like, that could have gone anywhere. <laughs> Everyone in the country knows someone like the member for South Staffordshire. A fucking dickhead. <laughs> like, really sort of, there was real venom in there. Now, there's a bit where Rishi Sunak says... Uh, we will deal with it with integrity and authenticity and wham bars and twixes. <laughs> so it just doesn't work. And then he's got a great line starmer where he goes, he can't even stand up to a cartoon bully with a pet spider. <laughs> like, it's such a good insult because it's like, there's something about that that just tells you how pathetic Gavin Williamson is. A cartoon bully with a... You're like, insult more of them, Keir. Go. Teresa Coffey, all right. She looks like a sad teddy bear at a fairground. A <laughs> Dominic Raab, he looks like Frankenstein without the neck bolts. <laughs> but Starmer's best insult of the week was uh, against the Just Stop Oil protesters who keep supergluing themselves to bridges and, and tarmac. And um, he was asked about it. He said, my message to Just Stop Oil is... 
get up and go home. <laughs> Become the master of just like the withering, disappointed dad. My advice to these eco-protesters is get a job, get a girlfriend, get a life. Tidy your bedroom and tuck yourself in. It's got a real, like, understated quality to how like, profound that is. Get up and go home. No one's impressed by what you're doing. Because in a way, it takes someone like him to kind of under... To, to, I think, to deal with Just Stop Oil. Because there is a... You get the sense that he's probably more their way inclined than, than, than Rishi Sunak would be. So he kind of has a, a level of credibility on the environment. And then he's just like, you can't keep supergluing yourself to a motorway. I mean, like, whatever we think of the environment. I mean, he did make the point about China. You're like, he'd be really good. Just like, just, look, we've got whatever you think of the UK company. We, I've got five different bins. You can't say we're not trying in this country. Look, I had to wash out a pot of Marmite the other day. I had to put the lid in one bin and the jar in another. You can't, look, you were trying doing that in China, for God's sake. Look, go outside the Indian embassy and see how you get on. You know what I mean? Like, maybe it needs a bit of that. That's part of the problem, I think, that Just Stop Oil have and uh, insulate all those groups is they seem to rely on spokespeople who are all emotionally unstable, posh people. <laughs> And that, you know, they have their place, usually at the top of government, but also, <laughs> when they're just the only people, you're like, you need some working class voices, do you know what I mean? There was someone on the M25 going, this country, this planet's going to fucking burn, right? <laughs> and all us bastards are going with it, and I'm not leaving here until we... Don't you fucking touch me, mate. <laughs> of course, on the, uh, probably one of the most um, honest interviews, definitely the most honest interview of the week, uh, was Angela Rayner giving an interview to the Financial Times, a wide-ranging interview, in which she said the immortal line, I lost six stone, uh, thanks to my personal trainer, um, but my boobs were left looking like two boiled eggs in a sock. <laughs> and she's revealed that she borrowed five grand to have a boob job after losing loads of weight. And I went, fucking incredible. They look like two boiled eggs in socks. And then she said, you know, like Bassett Hound's ears. <laughs> I've never heard a politician describe their own body in such detail. But, I mean, I thought like she was on a real one. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, two gloves on a washing line. You know, like the last two slices of Leodama. Uh, that's to get it sorted out, like, you know. Incredible honesty from Rainer about it. You just think, I wonder if... Uh, she said she had another great line. She went, you can't be 30 with a chest of an 84-year-old granny. <laughs> like a very specific threshold. 83-year-old granny, I wouldn't have touched them, but once I went over to 84, that were it. You think, I wonder if other members of the Shadow Cabinet are having cosmetic... It's Keir Starmer, yeah, I've had a bit of... What, I had a bit of Botox and a tummy tuck, some lipo... In fact, I had fat taken from my thighs and put into my penis just to give me a bit of extra girth. <laughs> you can't be 60 with the cock of a 90-year-old granddad. <laughs> Welcome back to the Political Party and a very, very special guest tonight. Tonight's guest has been an MP since 2010. He helped run number 10 for David Cameron back in the day before he was an MP, working as uh, a policy advisor to the then Conservative Prime Minister. But he's really made his name in the last few years. He was Minister Without Portfolio and Chair of the Conservative Party under Liz Truss, and he's not been holding back since. Please give a huge welcome to Jake Berry! <laughs> Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I've got, I've got you a beer. The, the much-promised free drink. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so, have you been watching uh, The Jungle? Do you know what? I haven't, but I hear that Mr Hancock's doing quite well. Well, um, well he's elected camp leader. 
Yes, the only election he's ever going to win, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think he's coming over all right. And is he coming across... You must have seen the odd clip. Yeah, I've been following a bit on Twitter. Um, the best place to follow anything. Yeah, and they're not being very nice. <laughs> What's the view amongst Tory MPs about him being in there? Well, look, I... I think, well, I think the truth is that, you know, he's politically finished. And... Um, <laughs> I can't believe that's a surprise. <laughs> Did he need to go to the jungle for us to work that out? Um, you know, he's politically finished, I don't think. I mean, he's a, he's a nice guy, right? But I don't think he'll be coming back into any major role in government. I'd rather suspect that he is um, not going to stand at the next general election and concentrate on a career in the media, you know, punditry in the media. And are, are Tory MPs saying, oh, God, you know, he's... he's, he's devaluing public office, so he's, he's bringing shame upon the party, or are they going, vote for him now, I want to eat him, watch him eat an anus? Well, I think most of them are going, 400 grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where do I sign? <laughs> um, Would you like, do it? No, actually, I wouldn't do it. But, um, yeah, I mean, you'd have to ask Matt why he's done it, but I'm, I'm very glad, one, that you've matched the fee this evening, and two, that I get to come and be on the political party. Well, it's an honour to have you here. And uh, would you do any? Would you do any reality show? If if so, which one would you do? Say, look, my phone is always on for Dancing on Ice or Strictly Come Dancing or something like that. Mainly because you apparently lose two stone, which is where I need to go. Um, yeah, but I tell you that when I my, my first marriage, my uh, then wife, my other wife's in the audience. I've got to be careful what I say. My then wife suggested that for our marriage we had some dancing lessons before our first dance. Nice, good northern thing to do. You want to look your best. And uh, we went to a dancing school in Manchester and they said uh, that there is no one who we cannot teach to dance. And then they sent me home. <laughs> oh, so what, what was she that? I mean, I don't, again, I don't want to dwell on your well, first no, wedding. But what, <laughs> what was the first dance song? Uh, it's uh, Daniel by Elton John. Oh, lovely. Yeah, very nice. The song lasted almost as long as the marriage, but... Uh, <laughs> Quite a sad song. <laughs> it's not the erection section, is it? That, like, it's not like a sort of smoochy dance. Anyway, let's not, let's not, let's not. What was your, what was your song for...? We didn't have one. On my uh, second marriage, um, we just had a, a quick drinks reception after it wasn't that we didn't do the full... Uh, nine yards, but uh, Mrs. Berry, who's in the Lady Berry, who's in the audience tonight, um, made the speech. Oh, that was her. Speech, made the speech at the wedding because I said, like, I, you know, I don't like public speaking. I don't like being in the limelight. So I, uh, so I asked her to do it. And she did a brilliant job. Well, so I, I think it's cool that like you were prepared to get lessons. So maybe dancing on ice because that's quite a nice one, isn't it? The jungle's the most extreme. That's like where there's more humiliation in what Matt Hancock's doing. But I guess. Yeah, I think Ed Balls went on Strictly, didn't he? He was, he was good. Yeah, and Whittacombe did Strictly. And Whittacombe. George Galloway, a celebrity big brother. Yeah. <laughs> Not for me, that. Would you like I do me quite do. like cats. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to be the cat? Yeah. <laughs> One of the best TV moments of all time until Matt Hancock ate a sheep's vagina. Um, so, Matt Hancock's in the jungle. Rishi Sunak's in number 10. And, and when he became leader... There's a video clip that I'm sure everyone's tagging you in because is it outside CCHQ or where is it? Sort of in the street. It is, yeah. Central headquarters. And all you see in shot is Rishi Sunak being applauded by loads of Tory MPs. But the only three people you can see in shot are Rishi Sunak, Matt Hancock, and you. Yeah. And he goes, <laughs> Matt Hancock, as he puts his hand up for handshake. And Rishi Sunak completely blanks him and shakes your hand instead. 
Now, I thought, oh, well, maybe this is a perspective trick, and maybe you were sort of lower down the street, and it looks like Matt Hancock's really close. Did Rishi Sunak deliberately not shake his hand? Yes. I mean, <laughs> it was a bit of a funny... I, I actually thought that was a, a bit of a bad look. You know, when you look at what the country's facing, to have that sort of rapturous... You know, all men virtually standing there. It's a bit like the sort of Chinese Politburo or something like that, all applauding him. And I thought it was a bit of bad luck. Um, you know, Rishi shook my hand and then fired me the next day. So he, he, <laughs> Matt Hancock didn't even get the job in the first place. At least I got the handshake in the firing. And did he, at that point, when he won, did you think, or when he was anointed, did you think, I'm toast? Or, or was there a part of you that thought, actually, he might give me a gig? So basically, I'd sort of gone out there a bit over the summer for Liz, um, made some moderately critical comments of our now Prime Minister, which were read out by Keir Starmer, his first PMQs up against Rishi. So I sort of knew that it wasn't going to be for me. And the other thing is, a party chairman is a really personal appointment to a Prime Minister, and you tend to come in and go out with your Prime Minister. You normally expect more than 48 days in the job. But, you know, it's a real personal appointment. So I'm not surprised. You know, Rishi must be free to appoint who he wants to appoint, but it wasn't going to be me. But he could have given you another job. He could have said, like, I can't have you as party chairman because that's like a campaigning role tied to whoever the leader is, but I could give you a, you know, a, a, something to do with housing or something yeah. that you've got po- policy experience on. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I would have taken it. But it would, it would have been nice to have the offer, but I, well, in fact, I am sure I wouldn't have taken it. <laughs> Um, but it would have been nice to have the offer. So, I mean, it must have been just an incredible period for you. You're coming in 2010, you've only ever been an MP while the Tories are in government, or, and you see David Cameron lead a coalition government and you've worked for him at number 10. Then he gets his own majority, then Theresa May comes in, and then Boris, and the success of that, getting an 80-seat majority. I mean, would you have ever thought, when Boris Johnson wins that election in 2019 with this thumping majority, that the party would be in the state that it's in now just three years later? Well, I think, you know, Boris is an extraordinary politician. He is the Heineken politician. My own constituency, Rosnell and Darwin, this weekend, went to the pub on Friday night. People said, oh, you know, we, we supported Boris. We don't support the Conservatives. We support Boris, and I think we've lost that now, which is really unfortunate. Well, in terms of that big majority and David Cameron's majority and Theresa May's sort of slight misstep, is I do look back and I think the Conservative Party knows how to win elections. I'm just not sure we know why we want to win them anymore and when we came in with David Cameron there was a great sort of feeling of look we're going to change things we're going to make Britain better we've got plans we're going to transform the education system and I just I, I just don't know where that that zeal is now look, we'll find out more on Thursday this week about Rishi's plans and I, I wish him well and I hope he and I and the Conservatives continue to succeed but we seem to have lost that sort of that real ambition for the British public and I think that's a bit of a danger sign that the next place you're going to go is opposition. Um, why do you think you've lost it? Well, I don't, I don't know if anyone's read Animal Farm, but if you like, <laughs> read the last page, in fact, the last three paragraphs of the final page in Animal Farm, they have the, uh, where the farmers come and join the pigs when the animals are watching from the window outside and they look from the pig to the farmer and back at the pig and they can no longer tell the difference. I think that's what government kind of does to you. You come into government high ideals, the ambition to change things, and then compromise, deal, you know, compromise after compromise. You just, that sort of, that ambition to really change things gets whittled away from you. But, you know, Rishi's a, a new broom. He might sweep away that sort of, that, that, that feeling that we've been in power for a long time, but we do need to see some new and ambitious ideas. And I ran this group called the, the Northern Research Group, which was oxymoron, but a trade union for Northern MPs. 
And we came up with loads of really bold ideas about creating investment zones and um, build Northern Powerhouse Rail to its full extent. And, all. and it's those sort of big ideas that are going to appeal to people, and it's those we need to see from the government. And it was the Northern Research Group meeting that Boris Johnson missed. Was this the one that was at yeah. Don Doncaster Racecourse? The, the very one, yeah. And people were livid that he wasn't there because... Where did he go instead? He went to the Ukraine. That's right. I mean, Zelensky's a big deal. Yeah, it is. But, you know, Boris had the Ukraine vote sewed up at that point. <laughs> and, you know, you had 50 MPs. And, it's what it, and, the, and the, I think what was really damaging for him about it is it wasn't like going to Conservative Party conference. If you go as a Conservative MP or a minister or even the party chairman you go to a conference someone else has organised and you play your part in it. But the Northern Research Group conference had been organised by the MP, so they'd phoned their friendly donor who lived in their constituency and asked them to sponsor the conference. So the MPs owned that conference. It was immensely important to them. And Boris just snubbed it, and I just think that was a terrible mistake. He was at a point where he couldn't afford to burn through one colleague, frankly. He'd just come the other side of his confidence vote, which he'd won quite narrowly, and he couldn't, and he burnt through 40 in one day like that. And did he, did he phone you and apologise? He did, like, I mean, the thing about Boris is, he's a good friend of mine, he's so likable, you want to forgive him, and he sort of terribly apologetic, and it was, you know, security reasons, I couldn't tell you in advance, and, and this and that, but, you know, the damage was done, and I, I do think that was, I mean, it wasn't the reason that he stopped being Prime Minister, but it certainly sent him on the road to, uh, to leaving Downing Street. So, People th on the day thought he was going to turn up. Yeah, yeah. So, I it's mean, like a no it's like a bizarre thing that the journalist was, he's not coming, you know. And I was going, no, no, he is. He is. I've spoken to number 10. He's on the train. He is on his way here, whatever you... And they're going, no, no, he's not really. I go, look, I've phoned them. I, look, here's a text message here. Look, I can show it to you. He is on the train. And then they phoned him, went, oh, he's not coming. <laughs> so, um, but the thing that really, really got my goat about it wasn't the fact that he wasn't coming. It was just, well, that did annoy me. <laughs> the thing which really annoyed me, as I say, sort of a northerner, is that the day before, number 10 had contacted us, and it, we were organising this conference, and it was all done a bit, but it was completely amateurish. It was brilliant, but completely amateurish. And they phoned up and said, well, we're not happy with the security, uh, so you need to spend another, I think it was £7,000, on upping the security so Boris can cut. So he said, well, OK, that's fine. So we, we, had, we were going to make profit out of this. We wiped out what profit we were going to make. And then he didn't turn up. And I said to him, I said, you know, okay, don't come, but don't take seven grand off me. Um, and, uh, and that was the thing that really, really annoyed me and, and annoyed colleagues as well. Because at what they could have at least done a lot, well, gee, I, I, I can't come on visit. But look, I'm going to send, I'm going to send, I'm going to send, uh, yeah, I'm going to send, uh, Dominic Robb instead. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we said Robby, and you know you rain the troops, and then at least you get the sense that you know we've got a replacement or something like that. But to like not turn up and to get you to spend the money. So Michael, Michael Gove did step in via Zoom, which is very good of him. <laughs> and they also <laughs> and they also, via Zoom this. Yeah, but, you know, and they said Steve Barclay's in the car on his way. I just went, Turn the car around. We do not want it. Fine, Conservative of the years, but we are not interested in it. Oh, Steve was at least born in Lancashire, so he is a self-identifies as a northerner. So then, you're all at Doncaster Racecourse. I mean, I'm amazed it didn't, like... You know when England fans, like, trash a kebab shop after they've lost... I'm amazed you didn't, like, burn the place down. Well, you know, northern Tories were all well-behaved. Uh, look, there was, there was a lot of anger, but... Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a fatal misstep by Boris, I think.
Which is a pity, because I want to see him succeed. He's a great guy. And we learned the other day, because everyone thought he'd bluffed about hitting the threshold. Yeah. Everyone thought, he said, oh, I've got the numbers, but actually I'm going to stand aside and let Rishi have it. And I was like, yeah, right, mate. Then Graham Brady says, two candidates hit the threshold. So we presume that's Boris. People said he got 102 nominations. So do you think he did? And, and if he did, why go through all that trouble to then not stand? So look, I'm sure he hit the threshold. I think Graham Brady actually said that. I think on that interview on the BBC, I think he said it was Boris. Who oh, did he? The threshold, okay. I think. Um, there's a really interesting article in The Telegraph talking about the meeting that Boris and Rishi had. Yes, at Millbank Tower. When they were trying to persuade each other not to stand. And it, it seemed to me that was never, ever going to work because Boris had been Prime Minister. He wasn't going to be Rishi's deputy. There's quite a lot of bad blood, I think, between them anyway. Rishi was never going to be Boris's number two again. So it was a, meet, a meeting doomed to fail. But the sort of readout in the Daily Telegraph, which I understand having spoken to colleagues, is accurate, is that Rishi said, look, you know, I've got the MPs. I brought you down once before. And if you do it again, I'll bring you down again. Which is reported, and I rather suspect is accurate. I mean, that's an amazing moment of personal drama between those two. Yeah. And uh, Boris at that point just says... Would he, would he then go, well, you try it, Rishi. I will, you bring me down, I'll bring you down. Or does he just go, you know, I don't know, what does he... What does well, he clearly bottled it. I mean, <laughs> but it, you know, I've been involved in... Well, I wasn't really involved in the last one, but I've, this is the third leadership election. I, this one I was a bit of a spectator because as chairman, you're the returning officer for the second bit with the members vote. Um, but I've been involved in... Or been involved heavily with two and been a spectator in the third... <laughs> And, you know, two out of three, he's bottled. So maybe that says, speaks to his character, I don't know. But is he doing that? Because surely if he'd have hit the threshold, he'd have won with the members. But he had to govern, didn't he? I, th I think there's a problem. Look, the Conservative Party, we have to come together. We've got to support our Prime Minister. And I just rather suspect that the, the psychodrama that we saw just before the summer... 180, I think, resignations from government, people not turning up to vote, people briefing openly on the media would have just continued if Boris had come back to power. And I'm sure Boris looked at that and thought, well, you know, you can be in government but not in power. And I think that's the situation he would have found himself in. He, he will only come back yeah. when we are desperate. That's when he'll come back. When we really, really need him, Boris will say, I'm here, I'm here. So, so next fortnight? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. First thing Friday morning. <laughs> oh my God! Because it did. There is something irresistible, and particularly, I think. The, I mean, the trust experience was just uh, sort of baffling for the whole contract. I don't know what it was. You know, it must have been terrible to be on the inside of that. Um, so then there was the sense that when Boris is putting his name around a bit, in a way, in a sort of Netflix society, you can't help but go. Well, it would be interesting if yeah, you came yeah. back. Now, whatever you think, whatever you would vote for him or not, this party that goes, well, that's in a way the most entertaining outcome. <laughs> so, does that make it the worst thing in the world? <laughs> that's part of you that's like, do it. Come on, let's just do it and see how it works. What happens next? Exactly. I don't know. There is. Um, so, so, I think Boris will come back. I, I, I wouldn't say when. I wouldn't guess. But I, I think he, I think he will come back. Um, he. he so Before politics is now, well, maybe who knows? Politics is now so presidential, isn't it? I was in my patch this weekend and people were saying to me, oh, we really supported Liz Truss. They don't, they don't really say they support the Conservatives or we supported David Cameron. Politics is now very presidential. I think that's what's 
enabled the Conservative Party to win successive elections because it hasn't been you know, a series of Conservative governments. It's been David Cameron's government, Theresa May's government, Liz Truss's government, Morris's government, whatever it is, Rishi Sunak's government now. And I think that's kind of the way politics go. I think that makes it really difficult for the opposition, actually. Because unless you have a prime minister or a leader of the opposition, in their case, with a bit of star quality, then they, they, it's hard for them to compete. So then Boris is just that constant, irresistible option where if the party thinks we're going to lose the next election... It's a bit like the Conservative Party's mistress, is it? <laughs> something he knows about. But um, sort of, you know, the, the tempting other woman, the, sort of the king over the sea or whatever it is. And I just think, knowing my Conservative colleagues in Parliament, that there will come a point when they go, yeah, but if it comes back, I might keep my job. And I think that'll be quite tempting to colleagues. So, I mean, it could only be, at the very latest, December... 2024. So we're talking like within the next two years. Well, no, I, I, I don't know. Maybe he'll come back after the general election. If we, if we lose the general election, maybe he'll come back then. But I just can't see him doing the hard miles as leader of the opposition, can you? I no. Mean, you know him quite well. I don't think he would do leader of the opposition. I think that is a man who wants to be prime minister and nothing else. Correct. And that's what he... And, uh, opposition, all that hard work of like... Having to turn up every day. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't think he'd like being the person asking the questions. I think that would drive him mad having to think of six questions for Keir Starmer every week. I think he might quite like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Asking, well, look, you, you ask oh, well, 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 the party opposite. Yes, well, what are they doing, by the way, about who well, talks about education? Bugger all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. He probably would do that. Yeah, no, he'd be, he'd be like, have I got news for you every week, wouldn't it? <laughs> so then... What's your assessment of Keir Starmer? I take it from what you said about the presidential thing that you think maybe he might fail on that test, but he's clearly, do you think, a more formidable opponent than Corbyn? Yeah, I mean, look, the last, the last election was the BBC election, in my view. You know, Boris, Brexit, Corbyn and Boris. BBC, I'll get that right. <laughs> the BBC election, Boris, Brexit and Corbyn. I was just knocking on doors in my working class constituency and they were going, oh, we'll never vote a Tory, won't we? If you don't, Corbyn will be Prime Minister tomorrow. They're going, not having that, right, I'll go and vote Tory. Um, I mean, Keir Starmer could not be worse than that in terms of the Northern working class voters. They just did not want Jeremy Corbyn to be the Prime Minister, full stop, would do anything they could to stop it, including voting Conservative for many of them. Um, so Keir's got a huge helping hand that he's not Jeremy Corbyn. To some extent, and really quickly, he's detoxified the Labour Party, it doesn't feel as scary as it once felt, but he is really boring. But maybe the country wants boring. Maybe it's boring's turn to have the Prime Minister. But it, and also, if, if you say it's the BBC, uh, two of those things, Boris and Corbyn aren't there. And Brexit's largely Brexit gone. Brexit is kind of largely gone. It, it might still create political issues around you yeah. know, the protocol or something like that. But it's yeah, now... yeah, but you forget about that election. Is uh, People were so angry yes. that no politician would listen and implement the referendum. And that, you know, whether people think it's accurate or not, when you're out knocking on doors and talking to people, they're like, why will you not just get on and do what we told you to do? Most of my constituents, when they voted Brexit, they thought, right, we've done it now, we voted for it, it's happened. And they couldn't understand why Parliament was debating, and remember that super Saturday when we yeah. came in on, on Saturday and nothing really happened, actually. I can't remember what was meant to happen, but nothing happened. And the public were just viscerally angry about that. Just, you know, we have told you to do this, just bloody do it. 
And I think that was hugely persuasive as well. And Boris managed to demonstrate, despite the fact that he had, you know, the number, he basically blamed the Lib Dems. He said it is the, with their whatever, eight MPs, it's the Lib Dems' fault, we can't get Brexit for it. Everyone believed it. And they all went out and voted Conservative. So, I mean, I, I don't, we haven't got that again. And, and you haven't got, so it's, it's not just, it's not Corbyn leading Labour, it's not Boris leading the Tories either. So that changes things. Maybe Rishi Sunak doesn't have the sort of appeal that Boris Johnson has. Well, look, we, we haven't seen yet. Rishi's new into the job. Um, and, you know, he's, he's got a... I think the big challenges of this budget coming up on Thursday, like whether we like it or not, and it's a really challenging set of financial circumstances, that will be the budget that sets the tone for general election. And if the tone is we are cutting education funding, cutting defence, I, I don't know what's in it right, but if, it, if it's something that the general public look at and go, that's going to hurt, then I think that makes winning the election really challenging. Um, Jeremy Hunt used to say that Boris Johnson, was all he does is peddle optimism. I see the public like that. The public want that. They don't want someone who says, you know, what I'm really like, I'm like Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, the, you're going to think of Scrooge when you see my budget. You think, well, yeah, but the, we're asking these people to vote for us. And so I, I think that's a real challenge. And who knows what will be in that budget. But I, I think as Conservative MPs, have got to be realistic that it's going to set the tone for the general election. And that's how crucial it is. And as I say, you know, I, I wish uh, Rishi and Jeremy well with it. But thinking of his, I mean, what do your constituents say? You know, if they're, they're saying, oh, I'll vote for Boris, what are they saying about Rishi? We haven't made the mind up yet. They haven't. I don't think they see. I don't think any of us have seen enough of them yet. But there, there isn't certainly the. The. I mean, there was at one point. If you remember during the COVID pandemic, he was sort of really popular, and he was, you know, furlough and all the great things that he did. It was. It was really, really popular. And then that sort of. I think there's a bit of anger out there, but the way he basically knifed Boris. Uh, you know, sort of people think he knifed Boris. Um, and so he, he's got a big job to, to remake that public image. doesn't mean he can't do it. I'm sure he will do. But um, he's got a long way to go. And so why, it, it, just given what's happened with the Tory party in like the last few months, why is Rishi seen as treacherous, but Liz Truss isn't? Was he... Well, no, I think Liz Truss didn't resign, um, for a start. And well, Rishi's... So with the resignations was... If I'm correct, I mean, there was 80 of them, so it's hard to keep up. But there was Sajid first, wasn't there? That's right. Um, who was... Was he health secretary? Yes. He was health secretary. There was Sajid first, and then Rishi resigned second. That sort of started. It was a bit like that Domino Rally Action Alley advert that I used to have on television <laughs> when I was young. And they sort of knocked one of the dominoes over, and they sort of clapped, slapped, 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 slapped. And the pressure on Boris just became unbearable. He, he could barely former government, and no matter how desperate he was, he didn't phone me back for my old job, though. But it says a lot about me. But he could barely form a government, and he couldn't govern. He couldn't govern or run or command a majority in the Conservative Party. And I think people sort of slightly forget about Sajid having started it. It just feels like it was Rishi who started it. And I think lots of people who voted Conservative for the first time ever uh, feel quite angry about that. I think, you know, we voted, 19 million people voted for Boris Johnson as our Prime Minister, and you took him away. So then the leadership contest is Truss versus Sunak, and it felt like Boris's people supported Truss. Was that just because of the, the sort of perceived treachery of Sunak, or the, or the actual treachery of Sunak, or was it... Because what feels, it feels like the Truss budget was a departure from Johnsonism, really, rather than an extension of it, or am I wrong? Well, in, in terms of the leadership election, 
I mean, I, I don't think it was quite that binary. I think you're, or your dear friend Gavin Williamson here, you're <laughs> doing your impressions of earlier, I think he was quite um, sort of involved in getting colleagues to back Rishi. There was a belief that, you know, Gavin always backs a winner. Um, and so, so I think, I think colleagues... Really? Was that like a, was that, well, I, I think that's play what a told, part? Yeah, I think that's what he told people anyway. But, you know, I think, um, <laughs> and he did. I mean, at the end of the day, he did. It just took, <laughs> it just took two goes. Um, but, um, so, so the leadership election, I, I personally think that in that last round of voting, there was a bit of skullduggery. I think there was a, a bit of belief in the Sunak camp. I was uh, definitely not in their camp, but I hear from Torton's colleagues there was a bit of a belief that he could beat Liz Truss with the membership. And I think there's a bit of vote lending and vote sharing and transferring. I thought they think they thought she was the weaker candidate. But she's quite, I, I mean, she is quite awkward. You saw that when she was prime minister. She's quite sort of socially awkward. She doesn't like public speaking. Um, and I think that they thought that would come out. But what really appealed to the membership was she said, look, when people vote Conservative, they expect a Conservative government. And I think this is one of the big mistakes that Boris made, actually. Because he believed, and we've discussed this, he believed that people who, in the Red Wall who voted Conservative wanted a sort of a Labour-like government. They didn't like the Labour Party anymore, but they wanted the same policies. And I know the Red Wall. I chaired the Northern Research Group. I was Northern Powerhouse Minister. And that, that's not what they voted for. I mean, OK, there was the BBC element to the election. But also... You know, they, they, and this, I think it's also why they voted for Brexit. They said, our life is really hard. We have been neglected by Conservative governments, by Labour governments. You've got your, you know, your cross rail in London. We've got, we've got oh, until recently, old pacer trains. And you're from Nottingham, I'm from Liverpool. You know, we've got sort of crumbling infrastructure. I mean, the, the transport in the North of England is just completely appalling. They said, look, our life is really not where we want it to be. We're, ambi we're as ambitious as anyone who lives in the southeast. So we're going to do something completely different. We're going to vote Conservative because we think maybe their policies will improve our lives. So they didn't vote Conservative because they wanted a Labour government. They voted Conservative because they wanted a Conservative government. And I think that was part of Liz's appeal with the membership and also in the public. In my constituency in lots of areas in the north, she was really popular. Someone came up to me today, but not today, on Sunday, at the Armistice celebration or the Remembrance Sunday and said, you know, thank you so much for supporting Liz Truss. We thought she was really going to deliver for us. I think maybe we forget some of that because of the chaos around her government. She did have real support out there in the public. So then when you're sat on the cabinet table, so she becomes prime minister and says, right, okay, she's beaten Rishi Sunak, she must be quite handy. And the public are kind of excited in a way. They're like, right, a period of turmoil's over. We've got a new prime minister. We're interested in her. And then it, it just unravels so quickly. What was the first point you start to think that this is not going right. Maybe I was a bit late to the game. <laughs> but, um, so, like, being Conservative Body Chairman is, is the best job, actually, in politics. If you are a Conservative, and I'm a lifelong Conservative, and you love our party, I do, absolutely. It is literally my dream job. Um, when I thought it really started to unravel is when she reversed that 45p. To me, it felt, I mean, it was an unpopular thing to do, but... Ultimately, one of the things we discussed around that cabinet table is actually, let's do things because we think they're economically right. Let's look at the data uh, that we have available. We only had limited data, uh, which is, uh, you know, as people well know. But do things because they're right, and then go out and make the argument. In my last, you know, 20 odd years in the Conservative Party, I can't really recall that many governments who've said, look, this is what we believe in. We believe in 
you know, low tax, small state, right of centre government. And we're, you know, we know it's not universally popular. We're going to go out and explain to the public why we think this is the right thing to do. And that sort of energised me, energised our membership. That's why they voted for it. And then when we hit that first sort of 45p issue and we just immediately, you know, collapsed on it a few days later, that made me think, uh, you know, we thought this was going to be different. Maybe it's not. But when... When the pound, when the markets react and the value of the pound's going down, the Bank of England having to take unprecedented interventions, yeah. at that point you must thought, oh God, in a way it was better to then reverse the policy than stick with it. Yeah, but I mean, look, my view is markets both, I, you know, from my time in politics, I've seen markets react and, and overreact, and they do often overreact in a better sort of, you know, that was a, a, a glow a week where the, the yen was as a 50-year low against the dollar. So the exchange rate, I think, day-to-day isn't something people worry about particularly. I mean, governments worry about it, yes. But I think the general public, you know, the biggest problem I've got today isn't the fact my fans failed, it's MOT, it's the fact that the pound is weak against the dollar. I think what really scared people, and rightly so, was that prospect of mortgages going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, because people looked at that and thought, you know, am I going to be able to afford to keep hold of my home? And they're, they're afraid. And the government um, and the Bank of England took action to stabilise the market. Uh, was it enough? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, lots of things changed after that. But it, was the, you know, it shouldn't have happened. It was too far too fast. There should have been a much slower approach by the trust government. But I think what really scared the public was that, was that change in the mortgage market. And then, see, so I don't know how many cabinet meetings were held during that brief period, but... What was the mood like around the table when you did meet? Yeah, it was all right. I mean, um, my favourite one was during the morning period for... I mean, because it was a really... So I think, what, she was three days into government when Her Majesty the Queen dies? Yes. Um, and so it was a really... You know, it was a moment of national crisis. I think there was a, a... You know, we all doubted the confidence of the United Kingdom, doubted ourselves, because the Queen had been there... For, for everyone, I guess, in this audience for our entire lives. And so that was a, an odd period where the Cabinet didn't meet because it was a period of national mourning. It was absolutely correct that politics was put on the back burner. Um, but we did, have a, we did have an informal uh, afternoon tea, I think it was. We had an informal Cabinet afternoon tea instead of a, a Cabinet meeting. And uh, that, that, was, that was immediately after... No, can't be. Anyway, but we, and that, I don't know, it all sort of merges into one, but um, that, that, that was a point at which uh, there was lots of, people were really positive about what we were going to do, um, but it just didn't work out like that. And then did you, as party chair, obviously you've got one eye on the election and, and your colleagues and, you know, the, the, camp, the campaigns the party can run and the, and the health of the party, really. Did you have any conversations with her about that? Were you saying, like, I think... Liz, you might have to go. <coughs> no, I didn't. Lose I, the, the, the party were always pretty supportive. It was the party's choice, right? They were all quite supportive of her. I think that um, I think we're in a difficult spot now. Actually, you've got. Uh, I think it was a great pretty. We didn't have a membership vote uh, to to get our new prime minister. I, you had Grant Chaps on a few weeks ago. Yes, and he was talking about the sort of the two phase. Well, when we're in government, we should have a. At MPs only, and when we're in opposition, we should have like a 12-week jamboree, like we had over the summer, which is mainly caused by Graham Brady going on holiday. Actually, I mean, it was the it was the reason for such a long delay. So I was told. Is that uh, right? That's why it was so long. Yes, yeah, so I was told that when we when we were. <laughs> How long was he on holiday for? <laughs> I don't know. In the jungle. <laughs> um, 
Oh, oh my God! So that had like a national impact. Was Graham Bailey was on holiday, so the, the so the whole thing was started. So, well, I was told that. I mean, I'd, you'd have to ask Graham. I'd, but I was told that because when we had the emergency meeting of the party board and said, "No, we can actually do this thing in three days. We can instead of holding your hustings, we'll have a Zoom meeting and then get everyone to vote online." Um, and I and I said, "You know, why did it take so long?" They said, "Well, it was the summer. Graham was on holiday. <laughs> you know, the country can wait." <laughs> um, so, but I, I do, I do think that you know, I, I think we should have had that members vote. I, I happen to think Conservative members are quite good at choosing prime ministers. They chose Boris Johnson. He did disproportionately well. <laughs> <coughs> well, this, you know, he, he did very well with the general public. Maybe not necessarily this audience. They chose. <laughs> um, they didn't choose Theresa May. She did very badly. They chose David Cameron. He uh, did pretty well on two occasions. So, I, you know, I, I think people underestimate the Conservative membership. My job as chairman, when I was chairman, is to make sure that their voice is heard by the Prime Minister. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Does it? I mean, I... I get <coughs> sometimes about members of political parties just in general. You know, when people say, oh, well, if it goes to the membership. Do you ever get offended about the way people talk about Tory members? Well, there aren't that many of us. There should be many more. There's just under 200,000. Um, I think... I, I mean, the Labour Party's doing very well with membership. Under Corbyn, they massively expanded their membership. And they chose Corbyn. So members don't always make a great choice, do they? But I think as a party of governments, having been in government now for 12 years, we should be really worried that we only have 200,000 members. And part of that's because society's changed, people don't join things, you see, um, you know, people, people don't feel that strong political affinity that they, they felt previously. But, you know, part of it's the Conservative Party's fault. And we've got to go out there and speak to the public, we've got to sell the idea of conservatism sell the idea of what we believe in. I think we've failed to do that for a decade, and I think that's why people won't join the party. You mentioned Gavin Williamson earlier, and, and he's been in the news for years. Uh, I remember under the Theresa May's leadership, there were rumours about him. Um, Rishi Sunak said the other day he wasn't aware of stuff. But given that it had been in the news before Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister, how could he have not been aware? Well, I... Prime Ministers must be free to appoint who they want, but I mean, I'm on record, I mean, he was aware. Um, when, when you're party chairman, you, you have some duties, even though, you know, the, the, even though Liz was going out and I, and I was her party chairman, the new leader of the Conservative Party comes in on the, I think it was Monday, he was the leader rather than the, rather than the Prime Minister and he goes, becomes the Prime Minister the next day and you have a sort of moment where he comes into the office and 
you chat to him and you sort of slightly lift the lid on Pandora's box and say, look, this is all the stuff for, which is in here. And then you sort of slam it shut and say, it's my job to sit on that box and, and stop it, you know, stop, stop it coming out. People often, what I always find amazing about politics, people say, oh, you know, the chief whip, he knows where the bodies are buried. That's why they always look after chiefs. I mean, once you've been party chairman, you know where the mass graves are. <laughs> and um, that's why you rarely get party chairmen shoved immediately back onto the back benches. They're not someone you want to make... Uh, you, you don't want to free them up too much. You want to keep <laughs> them held in tight. So you say to him in that meeting, you need to be aware of specific allegations about Kevin Williamson. So I, a, a complaint had come into the party. On the 24th, I think it was the Monday, a complaint had come into the party. I wasn't aware of the detail. I was aware of what it related to, which I was told at the time was uh, bullying and um, misogynistic bullying. And I said, look, you know, you've got this complaint. Uh, you may be going to appoint him, but if you are, you either need to, you need to deal with this in some way. And, um, and he said, yeah, you know, fine, okay. And, 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 then, and then he... Then I will deal with it with integrity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I was out of the building, so it was no longer my problem. But um, Now get out. No, no, he didn't. <laughs> it was the next day he gave me the bullet. But, uh, but did he give you the impression that meeting that he sort of received the message, understood it, and, and took it seriously? Yeah, you know, I, we, it, was a, it was a wide-ranging chat about a number of issues, but no, he definitely, I mean, it was definitely one of the subjects we talked about. I mean, that, obviously, the implication of that is that he's deliberately misled the House, uh, has breached the ministerial code, and should immediately resign. Well, I wouldn't put it that strongly, but, um, no, I, that's what happened. So then... The other interview, obviously, that you, you, you gave since uh, on, on Talk TV, we talk about Suella Braverman and her relationship with national security. Um, is that, <laughs> so when, she apparently responsible for multiple security leaks, and, and again, this was something... Well, I, I was sort of amazed that that was headline news, because it actually all appeared in Tim Shipman's column on the, on the Sunday before I said it, and I think she's now admitted that she emailed on six occasions and actually just... The one that she was caught out for was, well, she emailed the information to the personal email, breach. She then emailed it to another member of parliament, breach. She then tried to email it to that member of parliament's wife. I don't know quite, quite what her role, I'm sure she's a completely fine individual. I don't know what her role was in it. Another breach. So that's multiple breaches. And I, I'd been slightly, largely involved with the, the conversations in number 10 where the decision had been made that Suella should resign because, you know, security minister, you were not sorry, it's home secretary even. You, um, like, keeping secrets is a big part of the job. Um, and I think she correctly made the decision to resign. You can't be home secretary and breach the ministerial code. And, I mean, again, um, you know, I was asked about it. I, I, I just said what I, I know. But it was all in the public domain. I think maybe I put it a slightly punchier punchier sort of uh, line or spin on it than had been in Tim Shipman's column, but it had all been in national newspapers. And what's your view of Suella Braverman then? Because she was getting a lot of coverage, particularly, you know, the last year really, she's really risen to prominence, and sometimes it can be very difficult to cut through what are sort of politically motivated attacks and what are genuine concerns about someone's competence or judgement. Is she a talented politician that people are underestimating? So I really don't know her. Um, uh, I've I very rarely had a conversation with Look, I mean, she has a lot of support amongst colleagues, and she's done this deal uh, today with the French government, and I think something we would all welcome. I, no, I, I, I don't know her very well. She's sort of risen from nowhere. She was never 
um, when I was working with David Cameron or when I was in Theresa May's government, she was never a, a sort of someone you looked at when this is the star of the future, this is the home secretary to come. Um, but she does have a lot of support from the right of the party, which I think makes her powerful and, and sort of empowers her to that position. And where do you see yourself then? What would Berryism be as a political creed? Are you, are you, uh, are you a wet? Are you a, where would you put yourself? What I always find amazing is when I talk to different wings of the Conservative Party, they go, well, you're like us, right? You know, you, you, you're like me. You're, um, I, well, that's better than them saying, you're not like me. Yeah, no, I don't know. You don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> um, I take it as a compliment. Uh, so I'm, I'm bang smack in the middle. And I, I think the great sort of the deal, if you like, of UK conservatism is that the, the wet, as you call them, the sort of centrist, sort of slightly left of, left of centre within my party. One Nation. The One Nation, yeah, the One Nation group. They sort of, for the Conservative Party, do a lot of our, our, our policy thinking. So they guide policy and education, the NHS, um, social care, benefits, things like that. And I think that the slight deal is that then the right the sort of more economically pure Conservatives have traditionally then sort of been in charge of the economy and they raise the money and, and the One Nation people spend it. I actually think that what we're seeing at the moment is that relationship is broken and the, the One Nation sort of left of centre side of the party is controlling both sort of social policy, which is I personally think is a really good thing, but also driving economic policy. And I, you know, I, I'm not sure that's a, sort of a, a position the Conservative Party is naturally comfortable in. But if you were the leader of the Tory party, where would you position the party in the run-up to the next election? What, what would the Berry Manifesto be? It would have writ larger over it, levelling up. I mean, it's a hugely... And it, the danger with levelling up, it means everything and nothing. So if you say to me, look, I'd like to level up Rosendale where I live. For me, because I've got three kids, that would be, well, we want a great local play park or we want our schools to be fantastic. But if you said it to my father, who's in his early 80s, um, doesn't live there, but lives not too far away, that would be sort of, you know, access to GP surgery, great sort of befriending clubs or walking groups. So the danger with levelling up as a slogan, it meets everything and nothing. Now that is politically very dangerous, because when you go out and knock on people's door and say, we've delivered levelling up, we've got that brilliant new play party, they go, oh, I don't care about that. <laughs> what about the bridge club? Well, that's closed. Um, but I do think that idea that we've got vast tracts of our country that have been let down by successive... It's not a political point. I grew up in Liverpool in the 1980s. That was, you know, deeply let down by the Thatcher government. I mean, it had its problems with sort of militant left leaders. But, you know, it really was, to a large extent, except for Michael Hazeltine, left let down by the Thatcher government. There are mining communities up and down this country who still feel... Uh, angry about the, the sort of legacy of deindustrialization. Then you have areas like Burnley and Accrington and places where I live in Rosendale who are furious that we had a sort of a, a long period of prosperity under the Blair Brown years and, and no one really thought about them. They, they didn't get anything. So I think that ambition to turn around those communities has to be front and centre of any political party, for me, the Conservative Party, that wants to win the election. Because you know, if you live in the north of England, not many people know this, but your, your kids will leave school on average with one GCSE grade worse in English and maths than if they went to school in the southeast. The income differential between the southeast of England and the north of England is higher than the income differential between east and west Germany before the Berlin Wall fell. That's a disgrace. And I think any government that wants to win 
not just for the north of England, but actually just win the country, make it a better place to live, needs to say that this sort of disparity that we have based on geography, not ambition or talent, has to end. And I think that's why Boris's manifesto to level up the north and level up not just the north, you know, poor parts of Cornwall and you know, even poor parts in the southeast, we're going to transform these communities. I think that's why it's cut through, because people said, look, you are talking, you have ambition for me, my family, you understand what I want to achieve for my kids and my family. And I think if that's not front and centre of any manifesto, then you ain't going to be winning the next election. So, you're sort of reading against Thatcher's influence in Liverpool, as well as that as the hard left, collapse the comments, sort of stuff like that, and wanting extra funding for public services. Some people say... This sounds like a Labour man. This is, you know, the new Labour government did put money into these areas. It transformed the National Health Service and people's education and the minimum wage and tax credits and things allowed people to do all sorts of things well, to make them safer. Well, you would say that, wouldn't you? But well, if, if, because if, it's if, factually correct. Well, no, but, but if they did, yeah. why is that huge income? The, the, the North-South divide is, was as great under the Labour Party as it is now. So whatever they did, it didn't work. And, you know, you've, we've got to have a plan because it may, you know, it's hugely inefficient for Britain to be driven by the South East, the city of London and the South, to be the powerhouse of our economy. You know, we would be, you know, if we create, we used to have this, um, you know, this, this, an industrial strategy to create growth in all areas, but actually, if you create growth in every area and you add it all together, we will just be a better nation. It's also the right thing to do. But I also believe that you can only deliver that by growing the economy, and I don't think you grow the economy by having the highest tax burden that we've had for 70 years. I think we're the only country in the G7 that is going into this two-year predicted recession by putting taxes up, and we've got the lowest growth. I think those two things are connected. Many of the governments, in terms of the fiscal contraction that we're seeing, are saying, well, look, we've got to have a plan to grow the economy. I think what we may see on Thursday, I don't know, is a bit like a sort of gambler chasing his losses in the casino. If we have this rigid desire to reduce jet debt to GDP ratio and we do that by cutting capital projects in the north of England or, and increasing taxes too much, we'll reduce GDP and then you've got to say right okay well it's going up so what do we do next? Well we'll do, we'll do more of the same, we'll cut it more, we'll increase taxes more and I, and I don't think that's the right formula for our nation. I guess what, what I was trying to aim at was what made you Conservative and, yeah. and, 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 and not Labour? I, you know, I'm not here to defend the greatest government of all time, but <laughs> what it, was, it, it was more to, to get towards, you know, some I of the things you say, would, people would say, well, they're Labour values. So, so what made you Conservative? Well, look, so I don't, I, don't, I don't think the Labour Party owns fairness. I don't think the Labour Party owns um, compassion. Doesn't believe in ownership. And I don't, I don't, <laughs> and I don't think it owns ambition. And you know, the people where I live, we're just as ambitious for our kids as, as anyone else. And I, I think that's the core of being conservative, isn't that desire to see that you know, Britain's best days lie ahead of her, that my children are going to have a better life than I've managed to have. I, I just think that's a natural conservative value. And look, I don't agree with everything. I'm a Conservative MP. I don't agree. I, I've been party chairman. I don't agree with everything the Conservative Party does. I just agree with most of it. And if you look at the audience here tonight, some people are very Conservative, some people vote for other parties. But when you make a decision about who you vote for, I think you need to look at that party, not hear what people say about it, because politicians always say they're doing the right thing. Look what they do. And I think Conservative governments do have a good track record in terms of improving education and, and transforming people's lives. Study on that. Um, ju but just on, I, I guess the ultimate example of that really would, would be Boris, because I know he, he sort of got Brexit done. But 
you know, all the stuff about the new hospitals and all that boosterism, you know, it, it, you're absolutely right that it inspires people because people are like, I am going to get that new hospital. Yeah. And, I, and I believe this guy. The delivery end of it, does that match the rhetoric with him? That's, is that the downside of Boris? Well, we, did, we didn't really ever get to see, did we? Because COVID, we got all these things thrown in the way of his government. COVID being, you know, the greatest challenge our nation has faced for 100 years. But I also, look, it's easy when you're sort of a politician or a political commentator to sort of be a bit cynical about these things. But actually, when you go out and talk to people, as both you and I will do, they're willing the government to succeed. Yes. They don't sit at home and go, you know what I want? I want my government to fail. I want life to be really terrible because then, you know, that proves me right. They're willing the government to succeed. And I think you'll see this at the next election across the north of England, actually. All those people who voted Conservative for the first time, they didn't suddenly become Conservatives. Uh, they, they thought, right, we'll give you a chance. And what they really want to be is right. Because we all want to be right, don't we? We, want to, we all want to get things right. And they want to stand in their pub and talk to their friends and go, you know, I voted Tory and you all told me I was an idiot, but look, our, our town centre's just got a new bus station or, we, you know, our town centre's improved. Look, it is a better place four years later than it was four years ago when I made that decision. So they're willing us to succeed. And that's actually the route to victory for the Conservative Party is to push forward in the red wall with the levelling up. But people don't expect it to be job done. You've got towns which have been neglected for decades, for generations. They just want the government to prove that they're not just going to talk about doing stuff, that they're going to start to get things done. They want them to be the government that dares to do. And if they see that, I think you know, people will give us another chance. And were you, were you um, did you get into politics at a young age? Because I, yeah, I know you were a solicitor for a while and then you know, we were policy advisor and stuff. But was there a moment that you decided, I'm into politics? <laughs> I sort of like, so I think anybody who says, you know, at the age of 16 I joined the Conservative Party and I decided I want to be an MP should just be banned. <laughs> it's just like you are not allowed ever to, for any political party, you are not allowed to stand for election. Because I think that's a bit odd. Yeah. I just don't think that's, I mean, at the age of 16 I was just interested, well, I won't say what I was interested <laughs> in, but, you know, I was interested in things that 16 year olds are interested in. And at university I wasn't involved in politics. You still interested in those things? <laughs> at university, I wasn't in involved in politics at all. I was just in interested in having a good time and playing sport and, and, and you know, having a good time. Um, but I, I got interested in politics in my mid, early to, to mid-twenties, and I was living in Liverpool, and I joined the Conservative Party, which, you know, is a, is a brave thing to do, actually, in Liverpool. It is not a natural Conservative city. I did... Um, any questions in Liverpool recently? And while I'm, per no one's done it tonight. I'm normally, I'm used to people booing when I finish speaking. <laughs> but in, you know, here we go. Come on, they're behind. It's panto season. Um, but in Liverpool, when I, I, I did any questions in Liverpool, and people actually started booing before I'd answered the question. <laughs> and there was one guy. It'd be you, in fact, so I can see. It was one guy who sat in the front row. And every answer I gave, he started applauding it, as the audience was just booing away. And at the end of it, I walked over to him and I said, I saw you, thank you very much. I really appreciate you clapping for him. And he said, oh, no, I'm happy to do so. I said, the difference is that you live here and I'm leaving now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so being a Tory in Liverpool is not an easy way, but there are loads of us. So there's uh, two square miles in Liverpool that's given us Jake Berry, Estimate Bay, Kit Malthouse, Therese Coffey. Um, there, are, there are loads of Tories from Liverpool. And, um, and, I, and, and I think part of it is, 
you know, being brought up in the city under militant Labour and Derek Hatton, who, you know, we had our challenges with deindustrialisation. People in the city still blame that the Thatcher government for deindustrialisation. It was happening all over the world, actually, but it is still really raw in the city. But that was compounded by a sort of chaotic, sort of agent of chaos local council who wanted to sort of bring the Tory government down from Liverpool. And the people who really paid the price for it were the people who lived in Liverpool. And, the, you know, the Thatcher government survived, but Liverpool really got dragged down. So that's what brought me into politics in Liverpool, is that sort of, you know, seeing a city that, you know, had been a victim of political misdeeds on whichever, whichever, whether you're left or right, it came from both directions. And I just sort of saw the power of politics for good and bad and decided I'd, I'd get into it. So that would have been about 20 years ago. Yeah. So William Hague would have been leader of the Tory party, remember? He would, yeah. So were you inspired by Hague? No, I wasn't really. I, I remember listening to William Hague giving a speech and he said that he was getting a train back up to South Yorkshire with Seb Coe. And he said, I went, you, you'll do the impressions, but he said, he said he was on this train with Seb Kerr and he asked Seb Kerr, you know, do you think being brought up in that miners' village together in South Yorkshire, really rough, really run-down village, made us a conservative Seb? And Seb said to him, no, but being called Sebastian made me a runner. <laughs> um, so William Hague is a great, you should do the jokes, but William Hague, he's a great conservative. Um, I, I, I think David Cameron was a brilliant Prime Minister. He was an inspirational leader. He sort of was just cut. So the first election I was really involved with was 2005. Michael Howard was the leader. Quite a lot of what Michael was talking about eventually came to pass. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Uh, was the election slogan. Most people went, no, we're not racist. Um, but because uh, there was a bit of an undertone of immigration in it. Um, but a lot of stuff he was talking about, personal responsibility, the debt bloom, the, the, the sort of the challenges with the economy to come did then come to pass under Gordon Brown's government with the economic crash. And, uh, you know, I think that was a period where I first sort of came into politics. And part of that sort of seeing what was coming and thinking that the way we were living our lives and the country was being run was unsustainable was one of the reasons I got involved. And but, but, uh, just thinking of Hague, because obviously he, uh, you know, loses the election and then... Uh, it have been, yeah, that's right. So it, actually, it would have been IDS maybe was leader when you joined the party because Hager done ninety seven to two thousand one. Um, he is obviously a huge cheerleader of Rishi Sunak. He's someone who's on this show said well, I think he, years ago said when I asked him to tip someone and no one had heard of Rishi Sunak. Said well, who's the MP for my old constituency of Richmond in Yorkshire? Rishi Sunak. I think we'll be prime minute, and he turned out to be right. I mean, he's right. There's some guy tweeted me, and he put a bet on that night because hey, I know he's buying the drinks tonight. I hope, but sadly, um, the pound's not worth anything anymore. So you know, <laughs> if you just so, held his so, money. So, so look, William's a, a great concern. I tell you, when um, not not that it was a time for jokes, but when we were on the way to the Queen's funeral, I sat next to William Hague on the on the coach on the way to the Queen's funeral. It was a very solemn affair, but sometimes you get sort of gallows humour, don't you? And, um, and Ranald Jayawana, who became, I think, the youngest Secretary of State this century, got on the, the coach and was chatting to William and saying, you know, William said, I think you're probably the, the youngest Secretary of State. And Ranald, great guy that he is, sort of, oh, yeah, no, I think I probably am William. He said, but do you know, by the time that I was uh, your age, I'd been leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> and Ranald sort of slightly deflated. And then William then looked at me and said, 
And by the time uh, William Pitt was your age, he'd been Prime Minister twice. <laughs> um, so he's a, he's a hugely talented and bright guy. And uh, you know, his prediction about Rishi Sunak was right. He's a very, very bright bloke. Uh, I've, I've heard something about you recently that um, you like to break a rule every day. <laughs> yeah, break a rule a day. Yeah. And is that like, a, like small rules or big rules? Yeah, so I think one of the things about, it's, it's sort of a fight against red tape. So what I, how I got into this, um, I don't know, it's like sort of name dropping, but I, I, I went to Annex Station and I was met by the Duchess of Northumberland. And um, she walked up the, the wrong side. Of the, the Annex Station's got a bridge over it. It's very sort of common. You're only allowed to walk up one side. You've got to walk down the, the other side. And we, we went, went down the wrong side. And she said, oh, you know, we're so naughty. Oh, <laughs> Duchess, are we? Um, and she said, we're so naughty. I said, well, look, I, I think we should make a pact. We're going to break a rule a day, a pointless rule. Like, I'm not talking about you know, sort of going and speeding or, or something like that. Murder. A pointless rule, uh, which is just there for no rhyme nor reason. So, um, so, I, so I got into doing it. It's, it's liberating, you know. It's, it's sort of it's, it's liberating, but it's it's got to be something where no one is harmed. It's going to be a harmless breach, and um, and then I got to a stage where every time I broke a rule, I I text her and say, "I've just broke this. What I've just done." And we got into a sort of uh, a bit of a sort of banter about it. But I, I think it's you know there are so many bloody pointless rules in this country. I mean, we sort of, COVID has, you know, led to the huge expansion of the state and, um, you know, quite like, join the COVID panel. Why, why weren't you allowed to sit in a park bench? There was all sorts of things which were, you know, suddenly against the law. People were allowed in their front gardens. People were arrested for being in their front gardens. I think, um, I believe in a small state and I, I don't, I believe, my true belief is in freedom and I think people, as long as you don't harm anyone, do no harm to anyone else, but people should be free to live their lives. And if you want to walk up the escalator the wrong way, it was upstairs the wrong way and there's no one else in the station, then do it. Because if you get up the escalator the wrong way. No, that would be tricky. <laughs> that would be tricky. Was that the end of gladiators? Yeah. <laughs> so what other, because I mean, there's 365 days in a year, so you're going you're gonna to start, surely that's going to be a gateway drug to, you know, aggravate yeah, assault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mass murder. Swalking, I don't know, whatever. No, no, no. It's got to be, I mean, sometimes I have to do two because I've got to play catch up. But, um, <laughs> It's just point, you know, there's just, like, I, I actually think during the COVID pandemic, it was, look, it was a very, very serious time. And, you know, I think many of us, um, you know, hugely appreciate all that the government did for us and, and people in public. Service. Real chesty cough right on COVID. Yeah. Yeah, that was impeccable comedy timing. You know, I, I also think that the government sort of like, enjoyed telling us what to do a little bit too much. I had constituents contact me. I remember that Christmas where you were only allowed to, see people, I think, on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. I can't I, it was Maybe it was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and Boxing Day. And I had a constituent email me and say, look, you know, my children are, my children are visiting me, but they're going to be here like the day before Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day, but they won't be here on Boxing Day. Can I still see them? And I just emailed back and said, look, I said, Boris, you know what the rules are. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this party. And I just, you know, so I just... I, I feel, you know, I, th I think COVID brought out the best of Britain and the worst of Britain. So the best of Britain was people going working in A&E. We've probably got people from the NHS in the audience tonight. People going and working in A&E when there was this mystery virus that was just killing people. And they still went to work. That's such a brave thing to do. I don't know, such huge admiration. But 
everyone else, people emptying your bins when they thought there'd be COVID on your bin, people, you know, working as police officers. That absolutely was the best of Britain, and I think we should be really proud of that. I think the worst of Britain was a bit of a culture of tittle-tattle and sort of spying on your neighbours, and lots of it as a constituency MP, I've got lots of persistent neighbour disputes, which, you know, people complaining about their neighbour, and during COVID they became... COVID disputes. So they said, oh, you know, they, they had someone, they were talking to someone over their garden fence, they're not in their bubble. And I think, you know, I, I think for Britain, it's a very, very difficult time, but I think there was an element, a sort of slightly creepy element of what it would be like to live under a sort of, a, 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 you know, an authoritarian state that is really telling you what to do. I didn't, I didn't like that. How do you handle that? And then Pete just reply like, no one likes a grass, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you mind your own business. Well, I mean, lots of things with the COVID rules is, look, we all did our best. We all tried to live, I mean, you know, we all tried to live within the rules. They were so complicated. <laughs> they were so complicated. You know, Bolton in the northwest of England had 18 sets of different rules because they had this thing where they had the sort of perma lockdown. Yes. They kept getting peaks and they'd be locked down again and there was another set. Of, I remember going to Poland, we, we were debating it, it was like, you know, Bolton COVID rules number eighteen, they had, and 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 people lost track of it. I lost track of it when I was the MP. People were asking me questions. I was, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I looked it up on Google. But I think the the vast majority of British people just did their best. Did everyone comply with the rules? Clearly not. We know that some didn't. But I think it was the best of British that people did their best. But I do think there was a, an element of the state really enjoying telling people what to do. I, don't, I, don't like, I didn't like that bit of it. Did you have a bit of sympathy with Andy Burnham then, when he was fighting back against him? Yeah, I was, I was pretty supportive of Andy. I mean, it was intolerable. And the Northern Research Group, which I formed, one of the first things we asked for was a roadmap out of lockdown. And there were many areas of the North Wing, not just Greater Manchester, but in Blackburn with Darwin, where I, where I cover the town of Darwin, where there were sort of much longer restrictions. And in truth, I'm not quite sure whether it was the right approach. We seem to unlock when the wave abated, thankfully, in London and the southeast. But we, we weren't yet at our peak in the north. And it seemed that we initially made the decision about, well, let's unlock Britain because London politicians were making a decision about London, frankly. And the worst was yet to come in the north. And then we saw the north locked down again additional restrictions, people unable to leave areas. And I, I, I think Andy was right about lots of points. I think we should have taken a much more regional approach to sort of trap the pandemic as it went through the country. Okay, uh, we can take uh, a couple of questions. So um, indicate clearly with a nice big clear hand in the air. And uh, I have to repeat the questions for the podcast, I'm afraid, which I've realised is uh, slightly tiresome. Uh, but yes, the gentleman right at the back. Yes, you. Um. 2015, David Cameron's tweet by Ed Miliband, chaos. <laughs> Looking back, do you think that you were right to vote for David Cameron, given all of the shite? <laughs> okay, so... Sanitised version. Okay, so, <laughs> looking back at David Cameron's tweet, chaos with Ed Miliband, you know, whatever it was, security me or chaos with Ed Miliband, looking back on that, do you think you were right to vote... Uh, for David Cameron at the time, given everything that's happened since? Well, I, I mean, what really brought chaos to this country was the Brexit referendum. 
And I think having the referendum was the right thing to do. Uh, I know not everyone supported Brexit. In fact, I supported Remain. Um, but I think lots of the, the chaos have, has, which has ensued isn't really down to David Cameron's leadership. I think it's uh, down to... I think the gentleman's going to come back for a second bite of the cherry. He disagrees with me. <laughs> but um, I, I think a lot of the chaos that has ensued is, you know, with David Cameron resigning, Boris Johnson... Uh, sorry, that Theresa May becoming Prime Minister, then Boris Johnson has been a sort of a reaction of Britain to Brexit. I sort of got the, the feeling around Brexit is there were lots of people, members of Parliament in the Tea Room of all parties, who didn't, who didn't sort of really understand that people in my constituency who voted for Brexit should have a voice. I remember someone saying to me once who I won't name, well, you know, I, I don't really like people in your constituency who probably own a Staffordshire Bull Terrier and have tattoos telling my constituents in wherever in the southeast of England it was, what to do because we wanted to remain and your people voted leave. Well, that's democracy, mate. You know, the British people decided and it was the job of the British government to implement the results of that referendum. Okay. Uh, yes, just down here. So you mentioned about the bravery of NHS workers during the pandemic and before and after that, supposedly. Um, given 12 years of Tory cuts to the NHS, do you support nurses having a pay rise now? Uh, do you support nurses getting a pay rise? Well, uh, but I don't agree with the premise of the question, which was there's been 12 years of cuts to the NHS. The NHS budget has gone up every year uh, since, uh, since the Conservatives won in 2010. Look, nurses absolutely do deserve a pay rise. There's a question about whether as a nation we can afford it. Uh, they're asking for 17%. Many people in the private sector, the average private sector pay rise at the moment, I appreciate the cost of living is going up, the average private sector pay rise is between 4 and 5%. They should be somewhere between 4 and 5 but not up at 17 They should be somewhere above 4 and 5%. Um, because people who work in the private sector, like people who work in the public sector, and go out there and pay taxes are, are, are feeling the, the pinch of the cost of living crisis. And I think people who work in the public sector are, are some way immune from the great challenges we face as a nation. And the, the biggest driver of that cost of living crisis, in my view, is the illegal war that we're seeing being fought in Ukraine and the, the huge increase we're seeing in people's energy bills. And, you know, make, make no bones about it. I mean, people may be fighting, dying and thankfully winning in terms of the Ukrainians on, on the soils of Europe, but we are at economic war with Russia. They are attempting to hold our nation to ransom through gas and through energy. And I don't think any nation is true. I think we are learning that no nation is truly sovereign unless it controls its own energy. And that's why I support when Liz Truss said that you know we have to be self-sufficient for energy. I think it should be up there with defense of the realm in terms of its importance. Just hold on a second. No, 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 no. Um, so uh, the thing I wanted to ask is, the difficulty you've got is going into the next election is, you have austerity where you say public sector staff can't have a pay rise. There's always a reason why people who the government says are heroes and we stood on our doorstep and claps, and particularly after COVID, really brings it into focus. Do you think it's politically difficult for the Tories to keep going back to the public, particularly after COVID, and saying we're not... There's another reason we can't pay these frontline staff who put themselves at risk that benefits the private sector by having a healthy... Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing them down for one second. I just think... I, 
it is very political dif- politically difficult. I think there's a huge challenge ahead of us with the autumn statement on, on, on Thursday. But I unfortunately think that it's necessary. And, you know, we spent £400 billion pounds on the COVID pandemic. We have to, the nation has to pay its way. And um, it, it is very, very politically difficult. I, I, I absolutely accept that, you know, people working in the public sector have had a, a period in which their pay has been restricted. That's why I'm saying, look, I, I'm not in government anymore, but if I was, I'd be sat around that cabinet table saying, look, we can't do the average of 4 or 5% for the private sector. We need to get somewhere near 10% or whatever it may be. Uh, I just think 17% is just beyond the reach of the government at the moment in terms yeah. of the public finances. But when you talk about levelling up, aren't public sector wages crucial to that? Well, I, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of private enterprise in areas that need levelling up, and yeah. a government that really has ambition to level up areas should be saying, well, you know, how do we replicate the sort of the commercial success of the private sector-led southeast? How do we make that a reality in lots of areas of the country where, you know, the public sector is a far bigger proportion of, of, of the economy than it is in other areas of the country. It's a, and that goes back to that point of, you know, how do you deliver levelling up? You don't deliver levelling up just by paying people in the public sector higher wages, although I think that is an important thing to do and I hope that the government will. You do it by creating jobs, real economic growth, real new... The really interesting thing for the north of England is the the green agenda, the green industrial revolution, could potentially see the reindustrialization of the north of England. Huge uh, number of highly paid, secured, highly skilled jobs created. That is what I think will deliver levelling up. That sort of idea that if you, tra- if you live in, in Hull and you train as a wind turbine engineer, that will be a job for life in the way that working in a factory previously or going down a mine in South Yorkshire was a job for life. I want to create those highly skilled new technological job, jobs for life for people in the north. But then they'll unionise and you'll have, you'll, have the, you'll, have the, uh, you'll have the turbine trade, manufacturers. The turbine union. The turbine trade, union. Not, trade, in my view, <laughs> trade unions are fine organisations. I'm just never quite so sure that they should um, be as involved in politics as they are. But the idea of workers coming together, that's what Northern MPs did. They said, right, we'll come together Northern Research Group, Trade Union for <laughs> MPs, and you, Boris Johnson, we are going to hold your feet to the fire on levelling up. I know the power of that. I absolutely believe in that power. Should trade unions be funding political... Well, they're free to do what they want, but in my view, you know, do they do a huge service to the workers by funding political parties and not engaging with the Conservative Party when it's in government? I, I think that's a disservice to the people they represent. OK. Um, yes, the one there. transparency, professionalism. I kind of see, don't see any of that, and I think that is the Tory party's biggest problem, because you just don't land with the public, because we don't trust you. Okay, so Rishi came in on integrity, professionalism, transparency. Um, but you don't see that, and that's why the Tory party at the moment is unpopular. Well, uh, we, we, we need to change that. That's what we look. Who am I to argue with the audience? I saw lots of people nodding their head as you asked the question. Um, you know, my mother, she's now dead, but she used to have a wonderful saying, uh, particularly when I was younger and I uh, had a full head of hair. She used to look at me and say, handsome is as handsome does, dear. And um, you've got to judge people on what they do, not necessarily on their words on the steps of Downing Street. You've got to judge them 
on what they do, and I hope what we will see with Rishi is him leading that sort of government. But obviously, it, it feels like at the moment, I mean, if you look at the polling, there hasn't really been much of a Rishi bounce at all. I mean, there's a Delta poll out tonight where Labour is still on 50%. I mean, it's incredible, given where Labour was during the Corbyn years, that the, the sort of gap's gone the other way. Yeah, but politics changes really quickly, doesn't it? If you go back 18 months, Boris was riding high in the opinion polls. He, uh, party conference, he said, I'm going to serve three terms of Prime Minister. Jeremy, um, sorry, Keir Starmer, I beg your pardon, he's a mistake to make. <laughs> Keir Starmer was fighting for his political life. He was, you know, was his conference speech going to save him as leader of the opposition? And, you know, flick your fingers. Keir Starmer's on 50%. Boris isn't even the last Prime Minister. He's the last Prime Minister <laughs> but one. Everything's changed. Say, so, look, think things change very, very quickly. We used to say a week is a long time in politics. Like 24 hours now is a lifetime <laughs> when it comes to political parties. So uh, the, the Conservative Party will make up that poll lead as we get towards general election, in my view. But do you feel like, I mean, obviously it's just, it's one thing after another. It's Boris Johnson breaking the law, getting a fixed penalty notes and all the stuff around that, or the moral outrage, deadliest trusts and the budget and six weeks. And then it, it feels like, I can't remember a more turbulent time in British politics. I mean, just from the inside, as a, as a recently chair of the party and a member of parliament, do you feel like th the party's lost its discipline? Well, look, I think it's very, been a very politically turbulent time. If you think since 2010, we've had the no to AV or the, the voting referendum. We've had, you know, the Scottish independence referendum where the United Kingdom was almost broken up. Then we had Brexit. Then we had the chaos of Brexit. Then we, you know, there's so much happened in such a short period of time. You know, I think... I think politics, it feels so much less disciplined now, political parties more generally, actually. You saw a lot of lack of discipline under Jeremy Corbyn. You know, Keir Starmer's sort of turned that around. He has brought the Labour Party together. They sort of look like they they can sniff power. And we were talking earlier, um, not telling tales, but you're saying, you know, Labour MPs who come on here now, you can, they're not quite as free-flowing as they once were. They, they feel a, they're a bit closer to power, they're a bit more disciplined. If the Conservative Party's going to win, and I hope we are going to win the next election, then... We need to remember who we are fighting. We're not fighting each other. We've got to come together. We've got to support the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and we've got to you know, take the argument to the British people and, and try and win that election. So what would you... It's the final question. That, what would you rather do? Would you rather serve in Rishi Sunak's government in the run-up to the next election or eat a sheep's <laughs> vagina? <laughs> um, I'm perfectly happy on the back benches. No, no vaginas need to be sheep's vaginas. I beg your pardon. No sheep's vaginas need to be eaten to be a backbench uh, Conservative MP. No, I, the great thing about being on the back benches, and um, before I went into Liz's government, I, you know, I was literally the happiest I've ever been in politics because I was working with a load of people who were my mates. We were all Northern MPs. We all had a a shared agenda. We had, you know, earlier when I spoke about you lose that fire in your belly, that point in an animal farm where they look and they, you know, they can no longer see between the difference between the pigs and the farmers. You know, where have all our ideals gone? As the Northern Research Group and Northern MPs, we had that, that fire and that ambition in our bellies. And uh, that was my happiest time in Parliament so far. I'm really pleased to be going back to the back benches to sort of get that fire and ambition to serve my constituents. But also, I think there's a job to do now, which I hope to be able to do over the next 18 months and beyond, to go out there and make the argument for conservatism. Because one of the, the real pities of the, the Liz Truss uh, quasi-quartan government is it sort of feels to me, because of the, 
the, the, the chaos around that mini budget, that that argument for low tax, small estate conservatism has been set back by a decade. So in the next election, if we go into, I mean, I think at the next election, by the way, the Labour Party may be promising more tax cuts than we are. I think their current policy is to reduce uh, the basic rate of income tax to 19% and the Conservative policy is to keep it at 20 But that sort of, in the next election, I can foresee a situation where... So you're going to have to vote Labour then? No, I won't be doing that. But in the next election, I can foresee a situation where we go out and say, look, we're going to cut taxes and the Labour Party say, look at the chaos it created. Your mortgage is going to go up. So as a Conservative Party, we need to find... We need to rediscover our mojo and find uh, how we go out and make that argument for conservatism. And I'm looking forward on the backbenchers to going and making that argument vociferously. And do you think you need to rediscover not just your mojo, but your bojo? Who knows? People have got very poor betting against Boris. He is the proverbial rubber ball of politics. He comes bouncing back for more. He does indeed. Uh, Jake, it's been an absolute pleasure. Before we thank uh, Jake Berry, thank you all for coming tonight. <coughs> Excuse me. And for your phenomenal, uh, impassioned questions. But ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for everyone at the Duchess Theatre and Avalon for making tonight possible. For all of you for coming and being such a wonderful crowd. But please, a huge thank you for the brilliant Jake Berry. Well, there you go, Jake Berry, an interview packed full uh, of newsworthy quotes and already it's getting a lot of news coverage. So who knows what happens um, to some of those stories that, that Jake Berry told us? And who knows, does Boris Johnson return to lead the Conservative Party before the next general election? You heard it here first. Uh, well, I'll see you at the next show, Monday the 5th of December, uh, with Rachel Reeves. Rachel's never been on the show before, so that's very exciting. Of course, the Shadow Chancellor reacting to whatever this new budget says. Um, and then the Christmas special with Emily Thornbury, MP4, and another guest soon to be announced. 23rd of Jan, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. 6th of March, Eddie Izzard. And two massive guests in February I'll be able to announce soon. And I'll see you soon. Up. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic tees, soft structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim. All made right here in the USA with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code GRATEFULAG23.